This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. Welcome to a recap of our latest Third Thursday webinar. Hear directly from expert panelists as they discuss Parkinson's research and answer your questions about living with the disease. Join us live next time by registering for an upcoming webinar at michaeljfox.org. and thank you for joining us. I'm Dr. Rachel Dolan, a movement disorder specialist, vice president of medical communications at the Michael J. Fox Foundation, and your moderator for today's webinar. Today, we'll be discussing results from our Fox Insight survey on the coronavirus and Parkinson's disease, as well as how restrictions and distancing have impacted care and community. Fox Insight is our online study capturing disease history, experience, and perspectives from people with and without Parkinson's disease. Nearly 50,000 people have enrolled, and we're very excited to share with you today the results of the COVID-19 survey, which is the largest of its kind gathering this data from the Parkinson's community. We've got a lot to discuss, so let's get started. Let me introduce our panelists. Dr. Carly Tanner is a professor of neurology at the University of California, San Francisco, and the director of the San Francisco Veterans Affairs Parkinson's Disease Research, Education, and Clinical Center. She is also principal investigator of the Fox Insight Survey and led the COVID-19 survey. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Tanner. Yes, I'm really delighted to be here, thank you. Dr. Ethan Brown is Assistant Professor of Neurology at University of California, San Francisco. He was also a lead architect of this survey and its analysis. Welcome, Dr. Brown. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Also joining us today is Dan Morris. Dan was diagnosed with Parkinson's in 2016 and contracted COVID-19 earlier this year. He contributed to the survey and will share his experience. Hi, Dan. How's it going? Thanks. Great to be here. Great to have you. And finally, Dr. Maria DeLeon, who was diagnosed with Parkinson's in 2008 and is also a retired movement disorder specialist. She too had COVID-19 symptoms and will discuss her experience and the other impacts of this time in our collective history. Thank you for sharing, Maria. Thank you for having me here. Well, again, like I said, we've got a lot to discuss, so let's dive right in. And, and Dr. Tanner, I'd like to start with you. And this survey, as we said, was, was huge. We got a lot of data, but let's start by talking a little bit more about the motivation behind developing this survey and how you actually developed it. Well, as the pandemic uh, began uh, to really intensify, we realized we had no answers to any of our questions mm. uh, about how COVID-19 might be affecting people with Parkinson's. And um, we looked to Fox Insight as a way to reach out to the community and understand both uh, for people who did have symptoms, how they might be affected, but also some of the the other uh, factors that we thought might be affecting people in the community, even if they uh, weren't actually uh, infected uh, with COVID-19. And so we had this amazing, intense experience of uh, partnering with um, some people who were uh, Parkinson's specialists, uh, a few infectious disease specialists who could help us understand a little bit more about the evolving pandemic. And then most amazingly, um, this really dedicated 
a small group of people with Parkinson's and uh, other members of the community who were, um, many of them were partners of people with Parkinson's, but mostly people with Parkinson's. And um, they helped us at every stage of the questionnaire development. They helped us figure out things we should be asking. They helped us figure out how we should be asking it. And then as we went through iterations of the questionnaire, they also, um, gave us feedback. They were uh, guinea pigs taking the questionnaire over and over again um, and just worked with us all the way through. So it was a true partnership that I think made it a lot more um, relevant and meaningful in terms of what we wanted to learn and what we were able to find out. And Dan, you were one of the people who took this survey early on. Why did you join? Uh, for me, it was important to be able to use my feedback to contribute to kind of the data set that, that they're building uh, as far as adding to the research or such a, uh, you know, not well understood uh, evolving um, initiative and, you know, contribute whatever I could to, uh, to the program. Yeah, and a lot of people contributed along with you. We got over 7,000 responses in, in about a month. So, Dr. Brown, this is really impressive in, in such a short amount of time. What does that tell you about, you know, just online research or what people want to know or how you do research? I mean, I think it's a, it tells you a lot. First of all, it's a huge testament to the Fox Insight and the Parkinson's community. We know and we're hugely grateful to people's involvement in research in general. Um, I think people are incredibly motivated to help with research, and this is just a huge part of that. Um, I think, as Dan said, there's a big interest in people trying to understand the relationship between COVID and Parkinson's and trying to contribute to that understanding. And I also think that especially around this time when people were um, sheltering in place more and, you know, this whole experience was all very new, I think people were very eager to, you know, try to contribute in ways that they can. And so we were happy to provide um, ways that they could still contribute. I think that's right. The online research gave this this road to sort of do something while we're stuck at home. Many of us still stuck at home and, and to move research forward to learn more about something that we're all learning about in real time. As we start to look at this data, sticking with you, Dr. Brown, we see that of, of this over 7,000 people, 51 were people who had Parkinson's and COVID and 26 were people without Parkinson's who had COVID. What was the criteria that you used? You know, there's, there's been so much about can you get a test, how do you get diagnosed, and those sorts of things. So what was the criteria you used for diagnosing somebody with COVID during this time? I think that's a really good question, and it's one that we kind of grappled with a lot in talking with um, other environmental health and infectious disease doctors. Obviously, you know, requiring a positive test for COVID is not uh, very appropriate because in a lot of situations, especially in this time period, people couldn't access the test. Um, on the other hand, you know, the, things changed from location to location. So we, we settled on a diagnosis from a healthcare professional, a diagnosis of COVID. It means that the healthcare professional suspected enough that COVID was going on to provide a diagnosis. We did also look at a more strict criteria, which was requiring a test. Um, we did collect information on symptoms just in case people didn't receive a diagnosis and also, you know, were symptomatic and, you know, maybe one day we could look at that and, and see if we could presume a diagnosis. But in the end for this, we really decided that diagnosis from a healthcare professional was 
uh, seemed to be uh, what other people were using and what was, was hopefully a reliable way of identifying people with COVID. So sort of balancing what's reliable, what's realistic in this moment, again, as we're learning. And we'll talk more later about how the survey's still open and, and you can continue to learn more about people as they continue to respond and about, about the virus and Parkinson's. But speaking of having difficulty with getting a test and, and having symptoms and not being sure, which I know a lot of people have experienced. Maria, tell us about what you experienced with COVID symptoms and again, difficulty kind of getting a test and, and those sorts of things. Yes, um, my, my road, I'm sure as many people have, uh, have testified that it was not easy to um, get a diagnosis or even to be tested. I began with symptoms for um, that progressed over a month period uh, to the point that I was having uh, severe chest pain and difficulty breathing and I was saturated, my oxygen levels dropped. So I was pretty convinced in my doctors that I had uh, COVID, but getting the test was not as easy. Um, began calling my, my doctors about who do I needed to see um, in regards to when was, what was going on with me and also did, did I need to be tested. Uh, and uh, my physician said, well, you need to be tested by the, by the center that's doing the testing. But then the testing center was only open um, from, you know, a limited amount of time. It was not open over the weekends. And when I finally was able to get through to uh, the center, they said, well, you can't just have a test. You need to go to your doctors. But the doctors had already referred me over there. Uh, before that, they had even asked them because I was getting so bad to go to uh, the hospital and the hospital said, well, you know, if you think you have the, we think you have the COVID, then you need to go to the center. So we can't do anything for you here. So they sent me home. Um, so it took about a week and a half uh, for me to actually get tested uh, and a month to get treatment uh, for what was going on with me. Uh, so then once I finally, you know, got the order for the COVID test, you know, they said, just go over there. And then I went to the, to the site and they said, no, you have to make an appointment. So I had to leave again. Uh, in the meantime, the doctor had told me, you know, you need to get a CT uh, of your chest to see what's going on. And, and then the hospital, which was at the hospital, which, which was being done, they said, well, we can't let you in. If, uh, if you think you have the COVID, we're not allowed to let patients so, so it was a roundabout, you know, way to, to get my test. Finally got the test, and it took about five days longer to get the results. Um, so it was a very uh, unnerving experience about, you know, and, and persistent. I can see why people really get sick and why people give up, you know, if they're told if they have so many barriers uh, as to getting the test. Uh, in the meantime, you know, I was pretty sick and I could barely, you know, I was I was weak and, and wheezing and, and chest pain. And so, you know, going back and forth, you know, and so I had to have somebody drive me and, and so on. So that was very difficult. If you don't have anyone to, to do those things for you, then it's very hard to get uh, tested and treated. Yeah, a long and winding road there. And, and you're not yes. alone in that experience. I'm, I'm very sure of it. And thank you for sharing that and for sharing your symptoms and your experience. And we'll get a little bit more into your experience and Dan's as well. But as we move to the next slide, we start to see sort of the meat of the, of the survey and the results. And, and one of the answers, I think, to a question people have been asking kind of nonstop since this began of 
One is, you know, do, if I have Parkinson's, am I at an increased risk for getting the virus? But then also, if I do get the virus, do I have a more severe course? Will I have a more severe course or a worse experience with the virus? So, Dr. Tanner, can you tell us what you learned about the experience of COVID in people with Parkinson's from this survey? Yeah, so I I think the overall, with the, the caveat that this we still have a relatively small number of people in our groups, um, is that it seems that the symptoms are not really that different in people with Parkinson's and people without Parkinson's who have COVID. So um, we looked at this slide shows, you know, the, the numbers of people who had more severe outcomes, so pneumonia or needing oxygen or going to the hospital or needing to be in ICU or on a ventilator. And particularly those last two things are very similar between uh, people with Parkinson's and people without. Now this is, you know, not a population study and it's not a systematic collection. It's the people who uh, came and told us their experience on Fox Insights. So we have to think of it uh, with that limitation. But the good news is of those people, um, it didn't seem that the people with Parkinson's were really more severely affected. So I think that that's comforting. Yeah, I think, again, there have been a lot of questions about ventilators or needing to be in the hospital or those sorts of things. So you see very low numbers in this, and you were mentioning things that we see in, in these manuscripts, like they were not statistically significant and those sorts of things. Can you delve into that just a little bit more? Sure. Well, I think overall the numbers of people who had severe outcomes were low, so, um, uh, you know, less than 10% for almost everything. Um, and that's uh, one good thing, a very small number of people who had the most severe outcomes of needing to be in the ICU or on the ventilator. And again, um, if you had Parkinson's or if you didn't, um, your risk of having some sort of, uh, you know, worse form of uh, COVID seems to be the same. So it doesn't look as if people who have Parkinson's are at risk of a more severe uh, version of the illness, at least based on the people who came in and here. And Dan, you sort of were able to compare in real life, right? Because you had COVID and your wife, who I don't believe has Parkinson's, also had COVID. So you sort of had this experiment going on, I suppose, in real life of, you know, what is the experience in Parkinson's versus not with Parkinson's? So can you tell us a little bit more about your experience with COVID and how it may or may not have compared to, to the people around you? Yeah, that, that's right. My wife does not have Parkinson's, but she uh, she had COVID first. But her, her symptoms were very mild. Uh, in fact, she had a fever that just lasted for less than a day, and it was so mild that we didn't think she had it. We thought it was some some sort of uh, coincidal, um, you know, virus. Uh, but I was having there was a severe outbreak at my place of work, so you know we were definitely on high alert. Uh, and she got tested really because of that. So because I had stayed home from work after she test, uh, after she got symptoms, uh, and then sure enough, she tested positive, and uh, that that made me think mine was going to be an easy path, and it was much harder than hers. So you know, while not severe in that I did not require hospital hospitalization, I had a fever that lasted for 12 days, uh, with really days eight through 12 being no fun at all and, and being pretty debilitating. So you know, I was lucky enough to have a lot of family family and friends close by. Uh, to, to provide some support, uh, but you know, so so my symptoms really kicked in as you know a, a severe fever, 
um, you know, kind of a, a lack of focus, uh, a mental fog, and, and a pretty nasty cough added on, on the back end. So we were also using a pulse oximeter to keep a close eye on the oxygen levels um, and did not go to hospital, but did do a couple of uh, online visits with doctors. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned some worsening of some of your movement symptoms, your tremor in particular, which we'll get into in the next slide, and we want to hear more about. But but that's really interesting to hear about your experience and, and how it compares to others, which, again, is, is the goal of this survey. So, Dr. Brown, I'll ask you if you have anything to add to what Dr. Tanner and, and Dan said about how, you know, we, we may or may not be capturing the full experience of COVID and Parkinson's or, you know, this being preliminary data. Yeah, no, I think it's a really good point. And I think the point that uh, Dr. Tanner made, I mean, you know, th there may be a lot of people that are so sick that they haven't gotten to the survey or were not able to access this survey. And I think that's a, that's a very, you know, uh, uh, large uh, point of this is that this was early on. A lot of people got this during or after. Um, so keeping the survey open and going back and also maybe asking about different types of symptoms to try to capture uh, or different extent, as you know, as, as Dan mentioned, just because two people have fever, maybe it affects people in different ways, relying on different um, uh, family members or, or affecting your life differently. So maybe there are other ways to capture that too, but I think that's the importance of keeping this survey open as this pandemic continues. Definitely. And so that's kind of the focus of the, the quote-unquote COVID experience in Parkinson's. But as we learned from the survey, movement symptoms sometimes came on for the first time or, in your case, Dan, worsened for a lot of people. So, Dan, I'd like to start with you and hear about how your movement symptoms were affected by, by the virus itself. Yeah. So, as you mentioned, my, my tremor was significantly worse. Uh, as well as kind of uh, some slower, slower moving um, part of it, but primarily for me, really, uh, it was you know, uh, in addition to the the normal kind of aches that you've heard about most people with with, uh, with COVID, uh, you know, s severe aches. But really, as far as the PD ex uh, symptoms went, it was a significantly you know uptick in, in shakiness and uh, and tremor primarily for me. And Maria, you also experienced some changes in your Parkinson's movement symptoms. Uh, yes, um, I had. I felt. I usually have a lot of tremors, um, but I felt very shaky inside, and I was extremely clumsy. I was dropping and spilling everything. Uh, so, uh, aside from being stiffer and slower and just cognitively in a fog, I was just very, very. Uh, clumsy feel like my dystonia got worse and and uh, I was just kind of you know throwing things about you know spilling medicines and everything you know couldn't do really hold on to things very well. And Dr. Tanner does that go along with what you saw from the other respondents in the survey that their movement symptoms worsened which ones in particular? Yes, we did see that, and um, almost everyone, the, the, the actual symptoms of Parkinson's got worse, and some people actually had um, symptoms during COVID that they didn't have before, um, so that was a, a really, really common, and I'll, I'll say we do also see that in people with Parkinson's who have other kinds of infections, and while we don't know this yet for sure about COVID, um, what we do know in that situation is that over time, as people recover, um, 
generally their Parkinson's symptoms improve and kind of go back to baseline. So we're hopeful that that will happen here too. And of course, having people come back and continue to give us information will help us to understand that better for, for the COVID infection. I think that's an important point to make. And, and Dan, you can also speak to this about your tremor, I think, is, is still a little bit worse now. So I guess how long that sort of temporary period may last, we don't quite know yet. Is that right, Dr. Tanner? You were saying that COVID may be particularly prolonged. And, and so this, this period of worsening, we, we don't know how long that may last. That's right. I mean, I I know from, uh, you know, people I know who don't have Parkinson's but who did have COVID that the recovery period can be a really long time. As as both of the panelists have said, it's it's a nasty disease and can take quite a while to feel that you're really back to normal again. So we would expect that may pertain here too. And, um, you know, this is a great opportunity for us to, to understand more about that in, in Parkinson's and uh, how to be able to take take care of people better. Yeah. And Dan, just to, if you have anything to add there, you were saying that your tremor is still continuing even a couple months later. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So I, I think there's definitely been a slope back. So, you know, while, while it ramped up significantly during, during that period, it, it has been getting somewhat better, but I, I feel like I'm still not back to baseline. And uh, for reference, my, my symptoms were, my sickness was really late March, uh, kind of by April 1st, third. So here we are a few months later, and I feel like that's still, um, you know, mostly mostly better, but but still more elevated than it was prior. And interestingly, I kind of saw that with my, my workouts too, uh, to, to the doctor's points about uh, how hard it is to recover, um, you know, I could hardly work out to begin with, and it took a good couple of months before I kind of got back to what I felt like was baseline from that standpoint as well. Mm -hmm. But encouraging that you're you're back to your baseline from that standpoint, I suppose, but but not not helpful to have to go through that long of a period to get there. Um, Dr. Tanner, you mentioned that you know whether it's COVID or a urinary tract infection or whatever it is, we often see that. Parkinson's symptoms get worse during the infection. But Dr. Brown, I guess I'll ask you, why does that happen? Do we know? Is it the virus itself? Is it something related to the virus? Is it how medication isn't working as well? Yeah, no, I think that's a really good question. I think that we don't fully understand and, you know, whether or not it has to do with the severity of the virus. You know, there is, um, I will say, there are a lot of theories about the um, inflammation and its relationship to Parkinson's, and there have been a lot of discussion on COVID and, you know, a cytokine storm that occurs and a lot of inflammatory response. So could that somehow be tied? Um, you know, and, and on the other hand, whenever anyone is feeling bad for anything, a lot of different types of symptoms, both neurological and non-neurological, may get worse. So maybe just our ability to compensate for a lot of things is impaired when we're you know, when our body is focused on fighting off an infection, there are some theories about, you know, alterations in dopaminergic uh, signaling and, and certainly alterations in medication absorption as well um, that have, you know, been brought up with past uh, reports of, of infection uh, and Parkinson's symptoms. But I think that, we, you know, we don't, we don't really know. We don't really understand. And, and like others have said, I think, it, I think it is important and it's a very kind of practical question for a lot of patients. I will just say that there haven't been, you know, this is certainly the largest 
um, study to date in terms of who's evaluating these types of issues. There have been other small reports of people with Parkinson's and COVID that have reported similar things like you know, worsening motor symptoms or um, adjustment of medications. And I think that's another, you know, very practical question. Do you adjust your medications when, when we think these, these issues are going to be reversible? And, and so I think this is really trying to get at some of those and see if we can help answer some of those questions. And along those lines of medications and, and things like that, a question just came in, and Dr. Brown, I'll stay with you, um, about do, do we know if people were taking medication for COVID or if they had changes in their Parkinson's medication? So I guess perhaps that could be one reason for worsening. If you, you know, lower your Parkinson's medication, your symptoms could get worse. So do we know anything about if and how people's medications changed or if they got treatment for COVID during, during this time? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, we did collect information about whether or not people were treated for COVID at this stage, you know, and, and still perhaps now there are not a lot of standard uh, treatments for COVID. Mm -hmm. so we did ask people about what types of treatments they may have received, if there were any investigational treatments, and listed a number of potential treatments uh, at the time, which obviously, you know, has changed over the course of time. Um, we asked people a little bit about uh, Parkinson's medications, more uh, probably supplied throughout um, Fox Insight, but those are really good, um, good issues to look at as well. Absolutely, and good questions from our listeners. If you're enjoying this podcast, share it with a friend or rate and review it on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find and support our mission. MichaelJFox.org. Thanks for listening. Now, back to the podcast. So moving on now, now that's not, uh, that's motor symptoms that we, we saw people with Parkinson's had new or worse motor symptoms, but we see in the next slide, the same thing happened with the non-motor symptoms that people with Parkinson's and COVID had worse or new non-motor symptoms. And Maria and Dan, I know that you both experienced these on different fronts. Dan, you talked about your fatigue, particularly with exercise. I think there was also some anxiety, which I'll raise my hand as somebody who's without Parkinson's who's having anxiety during this time. But Dan, can you tell us a little bit more about your experience with any other non-motor symptoms or, you know, expand more on the fatigue and, and anxiety you experienced and why during this time? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. There is anxiety just for a lack of understanding, especially given the time period of late March, of a lack of understanding of what was going on with COVID in general, uh, and then really having no kind of insight as how that might affect me with, uh, with, with PD. So, um, you know, from a it was just a very uncertain time period with with so many unknown factors uh, that it was hard to get definitive answer. It was hard enough to get in touch with doctors at the time. Uh, so I was uh, almost my general practitioner was great, and I felt like almost too concerned with the Parkinson's disease, where where that kind of made me a little bit more anxious. And and he seemed to be. Um, it was during the time period when when we were really being advised. Uh, not to go into hospitals unless you need to, and, and I think he he was getting a little uncomfortable with how long 
the COVID symptoms were lasting and it was almost pushing me towards that end where I'm not sure he would be uh, if, I, if I was a non-PD person, which kind of led to, uh, again, more of the uh, anxious feelings about whether to just sit at home and write it out or to go in and seek help during a time when the you know, hospitals were overrun and it didn't feel like a safe place to be. Yeah, absolutely. And Maria, I think you were saying some of the same things about being nervous about going to a hospital. We've seen people who've avoided care during this time for strokes and, you know, heart disease and other things because they're worried about going in to see their doctor, going into the hospital and things like that. So certainly a lot of anxiety around that and anxiety around the unknowns, as you mentioned. And Maria, you were also saying uh, anxiety around not being sure if you can take care of your family when you're so sick and, and things like that. What, what else did you experience? Well, you know, it's funny because um, I, I definitely a lot of um, sleepiness and um, usually with any kind of infection, whether it be UTI, dehydration or anything, I, I know there's something going on when I start becoming very sleepy. And that this certainly was the case again, you know, it just couldn't sleep enough, sleeping for hours um, and getting, you know, mental fog. But also, I, of course, I had change of taste. Um, I lost about 10 to 15 pounds because nothing tasted right. It just, you know, it was real congested. Nothing was tasting right. But autonomic uh, problems, blood pressure was dropping and heart rate was going up really high. And, and so there was a lot of uh, changes. And, you know, some of the sleeping problems in that, that's usually common with, uh, with any kind of uh, other underlying illness, but certainly not uh, the autonomic problems and the taste loss, but also had severe headaches that just uh, would not go away. Um, and, you know, talking to other uh, colleagues that have treated a lot of people with COVID and they were positive, and even after, there seems to be a lingering headache. And I certainly experienced that, that even after I started feeling better, normalizing, no cough or any of the other sleepiness or other issues, um, my headache was still lasted for another couple of weeks. I was still having a chronic, uh, severe headache, you know, kind of like a migraine where, you know, you just roll light sensitive and noise sensitive and things like that. Um, I don't know if anybody else has seen that. But um, when I got to the point where I was having, you know, oxygen was dropping, heart rate was going up. And, and I could barely walk or anything, and everybody was sleeping. I'm like deciding, do I need to go to the hospital? You know that um, you're scared. You know, are you going to be admitted? You're going to be intubated, that kind of thing. So, so that was a very, you know, that just didn't make my symptoms better. Of course, it made everything worse. You know, my the anxiety made, uh, of course, my heart rate go up, and and um, mm -hmm. you know the cognitive changes. You know, just kind of get more irritable and things like that. So. Um, decided, you know, fortunately, um, you know, my doctors put me, you know, I was taking Plaquenil and they put me on steroids and things. And then I also, because of the Parkinson's, and I don't know if this has anything to do with it, um, I have been taking amantadine. And, you know, all I keep thinking is about the, the flu of 1918, you know, how amantadine helped with that. So I don't know if that has, you know, any anything with that, but uh, I'm just glad that I ended up not having to have uh, any kind of uh, admission to be, you know, with respiratory, you know, failure or anything like that. The, the outpatient treatments work fine, so. You, you, there's so but many like, things in there, Maria. I don't know how to get to all of them, but, you know, you mentioned I, know. I think we can talk about later. Um, but, but this big thing and, and what we've talked about in the last two slides about movement symptoms worsening, non-movement symptoms coming on or worsening, and Dr. Brown so much concern, rightfully so, about 
how do I know if, if this is COVID or not? How do I know if I should go in and get tested or talk to my doctor? Maria mentioned that fatigue or getting sleepy is often a harbinger of illness for her. So she kind of knows herself in that way. But how do you know if your tremor is getting worse, you know, that, that you should go and see your doctor, if you should go and see your doctor? What, what are you telling people right now? I mean, I think that it's, it's really um, a good question and challenging. And I think it was more so at this time when a lot of people didn't know um, anything. I think that now we are, we are certainly telling people not to, you know, to seek care if they feel sicker. Um, even if they think maybe it's just Parkinson's symptoms getting worse or normal fluctuations. And, you know, if they would normally seek care from their doctor, I think that I think they should. I think more and more there are ways that people can do so remotely, either through telephone or video. Um, so, you know, if there is a large risk or people are worried about that, then um, then they can do it uh, through, you know, that way remotely if possible. I think and there's that we've found, I mean, I think, one of the, you know, uh, silver linings or realizations of this pandemic is we've really found how how effective we can be remotely for those that we are able to do um, and how much we can get done uh, over the phone and counsel people. Um, but uh, so I think I think really trying to reach out if, if people feel that uh, symptoms or, or anything else is getting worse. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, you know, if you're concerned, if your symptoms are getting worse, certainly you should speak with your doctor. And and as you mentioned, Dr. Brown, telemedicine is much more widely available right now. So hopefully that, that's a, a point where you can access care more easily, even for mental health care providers, if anxiety is spiking for you. So, um, but certainly getting in touch with your doctor, keeping those open lines of communication. Dr. Tanner, anything to add there? No, I think uh, Ethan really covered it. I think, you know, just being being aware that um, changes in Parkinsonism and especially, you know, sort of really dramatic changes um, might be a signal and it would be really important to reach out uh, to your doctor uh, to make sure you're taking good care of yourself. So sticking with you on a, a completely different question, Dr. Tanner, Maria mentioned taste loss, which it can often go with smell loss. And I, I think we've heard a lot in the news about those being potential symptoms of COVID. Um, but we also know that smell loss can happen in Parkinson's. So lots of questions around this. What, what did you see in the survey? What, what do you tell people about this right now? Yeah, so many Many people with Parkinson's already have a reduced sense of smell. That's a really common uh, experience of people with Parkinson's. And as you point out, uh, sometimes you're not as aware of the smell, but the smell and taste go together. And so uh, your your ability to perceive taste or to enjoy certain tastes may, may go down. Um, so that's common in people with Parkinson's. What was re remarkable to us was that um, it, people noticed even a change that it got worse um, and were able to report that uh, even if they already had a reduced sense of smell. And then some people who, who didn't have it or hadn't been aware of it also noticed it um, when they were affected with COVID. And, and something also to kind of an, another reason to keep the study open long term, right, so that we see more how, if and how this evolves and changes over time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there also were people, I think it may be on a slide that's coming up, who um, noticed this, who, who hadn't been diagnosed. And, you know, as Maria mentioned, 
uh, getting diagnosed wasn't all that easy. <laughs> and so it will be interesting to us as we look forward to, you know, try to understand whether some of the symptoms that people experience um, may have been undiagnosed infections or not, too. So uh, all such great information, I and mean, information is, I think, so helpful at this moment on what we're learning, what we know, what we don't know. And, and we talked about the impact of COVID on people, uh, or the impact of COVID on people with Parkinson's who actually got the virus. But we saw, Dr. Brown, in the survey that the impact extended pretty broadly to people in the Parkinson's population who didn't even have the, the virus itself or, or didn't test positive per se or didn't have a physician diagnosis. So tell us a little bit more about those broad impacts that the pandemic has had that you saw in the survey. Yeah, I think that, I think this is really important. While the questions about people with Parkinson's and COVID is, is, is obviously very interesting, very important, there were uh, obviously a huge number of people, a lot more, at least in the survey, that were affected by the pandemic. Virtually everyone has been. And we, you know, really want to understand how people with Parkinson's who rely so much on outpatient care, exercise, um, really a whole system of ancillary services that often involve leaving the house and interacting with other people and that we have really found can help uh, people with Parkinson's in terms of their symptoms and, and their overall well-being. Um, so that was part of the inspiration for trying to understand how the pandemic affected um, uh, these people that were not infected by COVID, we presume, uh, but still, um, still obviously had to undergo all the shelter-in-place guidelines and restrictions from the pandemic. So we found a large number of people that had um, impact, obviously, to their health care, to exercise activity, to social activities. We asked about a variety of different types of social activities, like support groups, uh, community gathering, volunteer experience, religious gatherings. Um, a lot of those were, were either postponed or canceled. Um, and a lot of impact on the essential daily activity as well. So, uh, you know, disruptions of things like getting essential services, home care, um, other types of support in the house. Um, and a lot of this also kind of was associated with worsening symptoms in, in people who uh, didn't necessarily have COVID, but uh, were in the pandemic. Um, you know, one other kind of, there's a lot to talk about this, and we talk about a lot in the, um, in, in, in the manuscript, which, we'll, which we're working on. But the um, you know, important point, too, is how many people were able to find um, other uh, avenues of doing these types of things. So from everything to all types of social activities and exercise activities, there was a, a, a decent number of people that were able to find different ways, you know, presumably through tele, telemedicine or other types of, of virtual visits and continue these activities. And, you know, the hope would be that that would be even more accessible um, uh, and more available in the future as this continues. Yeah, that's absolutely right, and that's and we'll we'll talk about this on the next slide. But something that we need to continue to advocate for in the future is more widespread and continued access to telemedicine. But as you as you detailed really nicely, there were such broad impacts on things that are 
so important to Parkinson's care, the, the cornerstones of care, not only just seeing your doctor and, and, and getting in touch with your doctor, but exercise, you know, getting support, seeing your family and friends. And, and when these things were sort of cut off, people really did have to find alternative ways to keep their activity going, to, you know, maintain their social connections. And, and we're still in, in that moment in, in very many ways. But Dan, I'll start with you, and then Maria, I'll, I'll ask you to add in. How did you experience these changes? How did you adapt and, and overcome? Are you still working through them? Uh, yeah, so it, it was you know, obviously highly disruptive to, uh, to routines, I think, that everybody in the world had, regardless of whether you're affected or not. Uh, for me, you know, exercise and working out is a central part of my approach to managing Parkinson's disease, and so, you know, for, from a standpoint of the symptoms of COVID made that impossible for, for a while there. Uh, now I was fortunate enough to have my garage kind of outfitted it as a, a partly a, as a gym. So uh, once I was able to get up and moving, I was lucky enough to have a, a outlet for that rather than you know, like so many friends who couldn't get to a gym or wherever they might've done their exercise before. Uh, but then it was, you know, as I mentioned before, just a very slow start to, to getting things going again. Um, so it was hard to say, you know, what part of my, you know, uptick in tremor and, and some of the other symptoms were due to the COVID or due to just losing my usual routine of working out um, and, and having that, that kind of prong to my approach. Absolutely. And, and, you know, again, just being adaptive, finding other ways to exercise, be social, maintain your community. Maria, anything to add there? Well, it's funny because for me, I think that um, having been, you know, having Parkinson's for, for a number of years now, I'm pretty well adapted to, to doing things uh, because there's so many uh, fluctuations and, and a lot of times I'm not able to, to get out or do things. So I think I have already a good support uh, system and routine that I can do things, you know, from home. And it actually having been in this pandemic has actually improved my social activities because uh, now I am able to do a lot of this um, dancing and art therapy and things through um, Teleweb with uh, with the various foundations and working a lot with the Hispanic uh, community with the Muhammad Ali and, and with the Parkinson's Foundation there in Arizona. So we've been teaching uh, the patients how to access uh, telemedicine and Zoom and things like that. So we've been I've been a lot more active in, in doing activities with them uh, and having my daughter back from college. Now we have a weekend exercise and do things together here at home where, you know, before I was, you know, I, I was alone. So for me, it's been, it's been, you know, more of a blessing. I've been able to do a lot more than I usually do and not feel guilty when I'm not out because a lot of times, you know, that guilt of, you know, you're, you're not, you're not well and you want to go, Socialize and do things in person, but now since everybody's home, <laughs> we can still, you know, talk to each other and do things uh, together without having to feel that, uh, you know, um, that guilt of not being able to to go out and so totally different experience. Yeah, more family time, a lot, lot more family time for a lot of us, <laughs> especially yeah, in small yeah. uh, apartments in New York City. Um, yeah. But, um, 
you're mentioning a lot, as you always do, Maria, you're talking about, you know, being optimistic and looking for the, the benefits and the silver linings. Dr. Brown, you mentioned silver linings before, but we got a question from the audience, and Dr. Brown, I'll start with you, but about any benefits reported in the slowing down of society during this time, and you can keep that broad in society, or you can keep it focused on the, the Parkinson's community. Yeah, well, I think uh, that is a really good question, and I don't um, I don't know if we've looked in enough detail at, at that. Um, I think we did, you know, as Maria mentioned, we did capture those who were able to conduct these activities um, in other ways. And that seemed to be helpful for a lot of people in terms of preventing worsening of symptoms. Um, but I think it's a, you know, in terms of, you know, are there, are there new benefits to that? I think that's a, that's a really good question. And I'm not sure, I don't know, Dr. Tanner can comment, but I'm not sure if our survey um, really addressed those questions as much. I think that's something we're realizing more and more as the pandemic continues. I think the new benefit for me uh, as a patient is, is access to the physicians because my physicians are three, four hours away. And so now I don't have to worry if I'm not well or, you know, having to, to keep that appointment, I still can have access to, to them. Um, so that's been the biggest uh, benefit of this for me. And um, before we move on from this slide, I want to mention something really important that you saw patterns in, Dr. Tanner, that, you know, we're talking all about, you know, being adaptive, looking at benefits, people finding workarounds and those sorts of things. But, but you saw some patterns of disparities that certain groups had more difficulty obtaining medications or finding other ways to get care or to exercise. So tell us a little bit more about that and, and how we can use that information to be more inclusive in our care and our research. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, opportunities for advocacy are the take home from the, the prior discussion and then these findings that we had that um, people who were um, in lower income, who had lower income or um, people who were um, not white, um, had more difficulties um, obtaining access to medications or other things, um, access to um, alternatives such as telemedicine um, or online, other online uh, opportunities like exercising or medication or, or uh, um, uh, support groups were were reduced. And so, we you know. We've been advocating for making these services available to people in general. I think Maria makes a you know a great point that this reduces burden and improves the opportunities for care for people with Parkinson's in general. And I think the next step of our advocacy is to to be able to continue that um, post COVID, but also to expand that access. And um, it's an opportunity for all of us to kind of, you know, pick this up and, and move it forward so that everybody with Parkinson's has these opportunities. Yeah, I think that's right. Opportunities to expand in care and in research to be more inclusive. And we're, we're certainly working on many fronts, not only with the survey, but across research and as you said, across care. As we move to our last slide, um, before getting into even more questions, we're getting a lot of questions about the, the survey respondents themselves. So, Dr. Brown, I'll start with you, and Dr. Tanner, you can add in, but 
Can you tell us a little bit more about who took this survey? Was it all people from the United States? Was it across all stages of Parkinson's, different ethnicities? Tell us, again, just give us a little bit more insight into who actually was responding to this survey. Yeah, that's a great question. And we, you know, we do go into detail on that in the, in our report. Um, the, um, so out of it, out of the people that responded, it was, I don't have the exact numbers here, but it was somewhere around, you know, five, a little over 5,000 of the respondents did have Parkinson's and the rest did not. Um, mostly in the U.S., but it was global. We had a pretty wide presentation. There were other large countries where places like the UK, Canada, um, some other countries in Europe like Spain, um, but there were representations from, from a number of different countries, Australia. Um, the uh, distribution within Parkinson's disease was actually a lot wider than we expected. Um, there was a, a large distribution in terms of duration of disease. Um, so there are some people that had had it, you know, Parkinson's for a relatively short amount of time, but a, a, a good amount of representation from people that had had it for more than six years or even more than nine years um, that have had Parkinson's for that long. Um, so, you know, so we felt, and there was, as, as you may have mentioned, you know, the, the disparities in care that we saw, and it's a problem in Parkinson's research in general, that those are this is a, a, a small minority, so we don't have a large uh, number of ethnic diversity or racial diversity or income diversity, but um, the fact that we were still able to see these disparities, um, I think, is, is a real testament to, to the advocacy that we need, as Dr. Tanner mentioned, um, and a future goal, certainly, of Foxman's and of our um, online efforts are to try to um, make uh, these these types of assessments more diverse because I think we have a real opportunity to be able to recruit people from a lot of different types of backgrounds. Absolutely, and and such an important point and such an important learning that we we do really need to work on. A couple more just to we're, we're getting people are so interested. Um, did you know that Eric? Can you tell us the age range of people um, in the survey who did you know with and without Parkinson's who didn't didn't have COVID and then um, also expand on if you know anything about where people actually contracted COVID, Dr. Brown? Yeah, sure. Um, I was just looking looking up the numbers. The age range. Um, so for people with co people with um, Parkinson's disease and COVID, it was um, the age range was 40 to 89, um, and the average age was 65. For people in general um, with Parkinson's disease, the age range was as low as 33 and as high as um, in the 90s. Um, we do not know. You know, in terms of um, uh, we know some details in terms of locations and where people, I, I think you maybe mean like geographic in terms of where people contracted COVID or, or in terms of like specific exposures like work. Uh, we know geographically, you know, certainly in the U.S., most of the cases came from the U.S. Within the U.S., I believe most cases came from New York and um, California, um, but there was wide representation across the country. But were there right. other questions? I'm sorry. 
Uh, nope, I think that those are probably more will come through. But as I said, people are just very interested. And I think, you know, the age question, that's certainly one that, that we've heard for a long time, right, is that if you are older, you are at higher risk of getting COVID. Parkinson's are not. And so I think that, you know, that may be where that question is coming from of understanding, you know, and maybe you can tell us, Dr. Brown or Dr. Tanner, if you saw, was there any discrepancy in age? Did, was it, did it seem like people who were older and had Parkinson's were more likely to get COVID or were you not able to see that? So I think important to note that the youngest person with Parkinson's and COVID was 40 and the youngest one with COVID who didn't have Parkinson's was 30. And so uh, I think, you know, being cautious is ir irrespective of your age um, is important. Um, and, you know, the average age was 65 for people with Parkinson's and 57 for people without in our, in our group. So, um, you know, again, this is a little bit limited by we're only reporting on the people who came and gave us information, but I think even in general, we're recognizing that, uh, you know, maybe popular press suggested in the beginning that you were immune if you were younger, and I don't think that um, that's playing out at this point. And Dr. Tanner, sticking with you, you're very clear about what the survey can and can't tell us, and that, you know, one of the questions, again, that comes up over and over is, you know, with Parkinson's in and of itself, am I at higher risk for getting COVID? Um, but more specifically, we're getting a question about, you know, if I have Parkinson's, should I consider myself vulnerable? Like when you hear on the news that, you know, vulnerable populations are, are more likely to, to get COVID or to have a more severe course. So can you tell us more about that or how you think about that? Yeah, so I'll say that from the survey that we did, because we didn't go out and look at everybody in the population, we can't really say, are you at greater risk because you have Parkinson's than, than someone else? Um, from the perspective of taking care of yourself, um, I think it would be reasonable um, to take precautions and uh, not put yourself in situations at risk and, you know, do all the, the things we talk about in terms of, you know, wearing masks and washing hands and uh, avoiding places, um, you know, where you might just be too close to other people and uh, not have control over that. So I, I think that's, that's good advice uh, for people to follow. And you were talking about some other advice on, you know, keeping ourselves safe still. We're, we're really not out of the woods here yet. But, you know, again, with or without Parkinson's, it's, you know, wearing masks, making sure you're washing your hands frequently, social distancing, all those rules still apply. Dr. Tanner, anything that you would add there more specifically for people with Parkinson's? I think the only thing uh, would be to, to reemphasize what we, what we said earlier when we were talking, that if you do find yourself feeling, you know, not, not well, or you're a little concerned about yourself, uh, don't wait and, you know, be in touch with, with your physicians and um, make sure that you're, you're in, a, in a relationship with uh, your healthcare provider that you can get the best care possible. Absolutely. An, an interesting question, um, Dr. Tanner or Dr. Brown can take this one from, from our audience. I, I've heard temperature recordings from people with Parkinson's may be unreliable, and that's due to that autonomic dysfunction, that involuntary um, network of nerves that controls our temperature, our blood pressure, our digestion, and 
Um, and so anything that we know or, or don't yet know about how temperature may or may not be a reliable indicator of, of COVID in, in people with Parkinson's? As far as I know, um, people with Parkinson's, um, if they're infected and they have a fever, you you can measure that. Ethan, I don't know. Do you have any other information? No, I think that's – and we did, you know, we did look at people with – among people with COVID and, again, small numbers um, in a, a special population. But they um, – there were no differences between the, the temperature recorded or, or frequency of fever in people. Uh, with COVID, with and without. But I, I, I agree with Dr. Chan. I think as far as I know, um, that should should be reliable. Although keeping in mind, yeah. I guess that you know, not people may have other presentations. Definitely. Yeah, I wouldn't um, use the fact of not having a fever to be a reason not to go right to the, to be, be in touch with your doctor if you're otherwise feeling ill. For sure. Right. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. So if you if you have other symptoms but you're not having a fever, make sure you still get those other symptoms evaluated. That's right. Um, another question, Dr. Brown, maybe you can start with this one about genetic subgroups that may or may not be at a higher risk. Did you look at people with um, genes that are associated with Parkinson's, like LERC2 or GBA? Do you know anything about that in COVID? So yeah, that's a good question. There was some suggestion of some genetic risk in another study actually with the APOE4 um, allele, which is more related to Alzheimer's, although also may have some, um, you know, relationship with Parkinson's and symptoms in Parkinson's. Are, you know, it's a very, there were some people that had genotyping through Foxinsight, which is um, possible for people with Parkinson's disease. Um, so we were able to look at that in a very small group of people, and we didn't find any, um, you know, differences in terms of risk to what extent we could look at um, or uh, changes in symptoms. So it's hard to say with such small numbers, but we, we didn't detect that. And to, just to emphasize, not only APOE4, there was no association, but we did look also at the people who did have GDA-associated, uh, Parkinson's-associated mutations and LARC2 mutations, and there was no difference in those people either. Well, we could talk for another hour on this topic, on this survey, but we're uh, amazingly already at the end of our hour together. Um, I, I would like to give each of you the opportunity to give a, a couple of last thoughts or words about, you know, your experience or the survey. So, um, Dan, if, if you'd be able to start, just tell our audience, again, what maybe what you'd like to leave, leave them with today. Yeah, I just, I think the, the Fox Foundation uh, is doing such great work in, in conducting this survey uh, with, obviously, the, the two esteemed doctors on, on board here. Uh, so, you know, it's really an honor to be able to uh, contribute to and be, be part of the data that hopefully uh, comes up with some answers that can, can help guide people uh, who might be affected in the future. Um, so, you know, thank you again for having me and, and uh, super excited to be a part of this project. Uh, we're so grateful for your participation. And Maria, how about you? We also, I should say, got a, a comment that um, somebody in our audience has your book and recommended it to their Parkinson's support group. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for allowing me to be here and share part of this experience trying to figure out um, how things impact, you know, not just Parkinson's, but neurologically. And I think as Dr. Tanner and Dr. Brown, uh, thank you for doing this, but also, um, you know, realizing that if there's any changes in any of the 
Parkinson's symptoms, whether it's COVID or not, I think that they need to be in touch with their their uh, physician right away to make sure that there's nothing else going on. But uh, and the only thing that I would love to see this in um, in Spanish so that we can get more information about disparity and how it's affecting in, um, the communities outside of uh, you know of what we have so far. So I'll be glad to work with you guys if you guys are interested and you, in that. And you're but already you. helping us with that. Yep. And um, and you said, you know, thanks for allowing you to participate, but we, we can't do it without you, Maria. We can't do it without oh, the other 7,000 so people who, who participated in the survey. So, so thank you all. And um, Dr. Brown, anything you'd like to leave our audience with? I think just, uh, you know, reiterating how grateful we are to the Parkinson's community, both for participating in the in the research in the survey for I can't imagine a community that could you know provide us with such information so rapidly when when you know uh, information is important to get quickly in this setting but also on the design side and really helping us you know continuing to help us understand the mm -hmm. the right questions to ask and what matters to the community so I think just really thank, thanks to everyone and you know looking out for more opportunities to inform us on this subject. Yep, they're with us every step of the way. And Dr. Tanner, any last words? Yeah, so I, I just echo everything that, that has been said by the, the panelists before. Um, this is, I think, a great demonstration of the partnership and um, how powerful that can be in terms of uh, really rapidly uh, advancing understanding and being able to move forward to make change. And um, I encourage anybody who hasn't yet uh, signed up to sign up and provide us with information and you know be part of that and uh, we look forward to learning more as we go forward so thanks a lot yep thank you and the survey is still open as you mentioned and and people can join um, now and in the future so thank you all for being here for sharing your experience for sharing your expertise thank you in our audience for joining us and for being part of our community please stay home, stay safe, but most importantly, stay connected. Thanks for listening. Community members like you are bringing us closer than ever to a world without Parkinson's disease. Learn how you can support the Michael J. Fox Foundation in its mission at michaeljfox.org. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.